real human life is already making fake human life with artificial intelligence programs. But many science fiction writers have already been rushing ahead to the future to ask whether these artificial lives could count as human beings with human rights. Can we see the image of God reflecting in these synthetic creatures made in man's image? Today we are joined by a popular author who has just passed our Turing test. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the human organic life podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm E. Sigmund Burnett. I just passed the CAPTCHA test myself. I'm the co-author of The Pop Culture Parent and the publisher of Lorehaven. And to quote ChatGPT, as a language model, I don't have personal opinions or beliefs, but based on current trends and developments in technology and society, it is possible to make some educated guesses, blah, 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 blah. No, I'm really Zachary Russell, and I'm the co-host of Fantastical Truth, and this is episode 158, Can a Man-Made Life Form Reflect God's Glory? And we're going to be joined by the author of Synapse, Stephen James. Stephen James will be the fourth entrant in our Steve saga, which we thought was concluded in September, but we were wrong. The future just has plot twists like this one, so I look forward to him rolling into the studio in just a moment. Yeah, I think my uh, title there, I tried to word that very carefully. Can a man-made life form reflect God's glory? Because I would answer that question, yes, but whether the man-made life form would know that he or she or it was doing so, that is another question that leads to all kinds of fantastical speculations, at first in science fiction and now in reality. Stephen, what's so interesting about this whole topic is this isn't exactly a new story, even though all of the technology is new, but we've had the story of Pinocchio for how long now? We've had this, you know, idea in our culture of like, could an artificial thing become a real thing, you know, because it, it really goes back to Genesis, how God made man out of dust. And so we've always wondered, could we make something living out of something non-living? We're going to get into that. And I, I think the other big point being a podcast about fiction are humans going to lose their edge as storytellers or are the robots going to take over the bookstores? And that is definitely something we're going to talk about today. Speaking of a science fiction future, let's go to our top sponsor, which emphasizes a space opera starring human beings. It's our top sponsor, Enclave Publishing, with their newest release, uh, the science fiction book from author Roni Kendig, War of Torment. This is book four in the Drosseran Saga by Roni Kendig, just released in April from Enclave. The time for peace is over. Now he demands vengeance. They followed him back against his will, against his intention. Now enemies threaten from every direction. Amidst it all, Marco Dusan struggles to lead his people to help them survive, even mayhap win the war. He will take any advantage to even the odds, but only after tragedy strikes does he learn just how much he's willing to sacrifice. War of Torment is available uh, starting out as a hardback from Enclave Publishing. The audiobook is available from Oasis Audio, wherever books are sold. Go to enclavepublishing.com or we will have more links at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. All right. Uh, now that Stephen James has uh, passed the human test outside the studio, I think we can let him in. Stephen James has just entered the studio on a hoverboard. He is the host of the Story Blender podcast and the critically acclaimed author of 18 novels, including the 2019 science fiction novel Synapse 
and numerous nonfiction books that have sold more than one million copies. His books have won or been shortlisted for dozens of national and international awards. In addition, his stories and articles have appeared in more than 80 different publications, including the New York Times. He is also a popular keynote speaker and professional storyteller with a master's degree in storytelling. His latest thriller novel, Broker of Lies, just released in April. Stephen James, you're also the fourth Steve in our Steve saga, which we (laughs) thought was concluded last September. But it turns out they just want to string that franchise along uh, with endless reboots and sequels. So glad you could make it. Hey, thank you. I'm glad to be in the string of Steve's. That's very nice. <laughs> yes, Steve the Fourth is a very important Steve. Uh, Steve we just fourth, couldn't do yeah. without him yeah. in the superhero lineup. Uh, Steve the Fourth, Stephen James, how did you discover biblical faith and fantastic imagination, whether it was a certain Jesus-like lion or some other means in your past? <laughs> well, I mean, I actually, I grew up going to church, but it wasn't until I was um, in my early 20s where I feel like I really ended up with uh, what I would say saving uh, faith. So I grew, like I say, I grew up learning all of these doctrines and teachings and so on. And it was always kind of dry uh, for me. And then when I when I got saved, it was like, I read this verse in the Bible that, that Paul had written, and he said, therefore, we take every thought captive for Christ. And I thought, well, I think in stories, like that's how I process things. So, I th- so what if I stuck that word in there? So therefore, we take every story captive for Christ. And I was like, that's what I want my life to do. That's what I want my life to be. And I remember reading the old classic, The Pilgrim's Progress in those days. And the thing is, it's kind of hard to get through, honestly, but it really, it was a look at doctrine or, or Christian faith through the eyes of allegory and story. And so it was almost like my black and white faith became color by those two aspects, reading the uh, Pilgrim's Progress from back in the day, and then thinking about how, you know, taking stories captive for Christ. And I remember reading uh, C.S. Lewis had written the um, introduction to uh, George MacDonald's Fantasies of Fairy Romance, a uh, collection of, of fairy tales, really. And, and uh, C.S. Lewis said that, he said, my, my imagination was baptized, even converted by reading these stories. My intellect came many years later with the help of many other books and many other men. I think that was like amazing that C.S. Lewis, um, who wrote the Narnia series, obviously, um, said that his imagination was converted, baptized by reading fairy tales. And uh, I think today within Christian circles, if we... If we appeal at all to imagination, it's certainly not primary. It's like we're just like let's just get information to people. Let's like get them a three point outline or or uh, you know little blanks to fill in the all. Start with the letter D or P, but let's not really worry too much about imagination. And so for me, it's kind of the opposite. Actually, I actually feel like imagination can precede a lot of that. And uh, so ever since those days, I mean, that's that's a minute ago by now because I'm a little bit older, but those influences have been a part of my faith journey, those three things. I love that about the imagination, how that gets converted first. Um, There's a training on evangelism that I've gone through where it's just this very simple question that you throw in, which is, do you think it's possible that, 
dot, dot, dot. What if this was true, dot, dot, dot? What would that mean? And just asking just kind of good questions like that that get people to think about it for themselves because I think evan- or, uh, evangelism and apologetics 1.0 is just sort of declaring like, here's the gospel, here's the reasons you can trust the Bible, here's the reasons why Christ rose from the dead, here's the reasons why Jesus is the only way, and all that's great. But I think, uh, like to use a golf analogy, a lot of people are not on the green where they just need a putter. They're, they're in a sand trap or they're way back on the fairway or maybe at the tee box and like you need a different tool to kind of move the ball down the field a little bit. And I think asking questions and getting people to imagine it and to suppose that it could be true, it sort of breaks down that, that tension or that barrier because a lot of people, they're already ready to tell you why they don't believe or why that, you know, the Bible can't be true or why you can't trust it. You know, just getting them to think about it a little bit helps them sort of take that step and it, it disarms them a little bit, I think. In the Bible, we're called to believe and to set our eyes on what we cannot see. How do you set your eyes on what you cannot see? And we're asked to know a faith that surpasses knowledge. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? And so Christianity is this is this faith that's rooted in you know, imagination. So here's a place where the lamb tramples the snake and the carpenter becomes the king. And to me, it's just, uh, it's fascinating, amazing. And I, I often try to encourage people to fall in love with the wonder again. It's not just some sort of stale book. Uh, it's actually a story of wonder and grace and marvel and, and pain and glory and blood and redemption. And uh, so the I think that the the more we can climb into the actual power of that story, I feel like that is what, what you were saying, like an apologetic. I feel like that calls to us because we want that. I feel like we want people want something meaningful and big. You know, I sometimes tell people, if you can take Jesus and encapsulate him into five little easy points that he's easy to understand and outline, please, please, please stop talking about him. That's not who he is. That's not what he's about. And uh, he's, God is not a problem to be solved. He's a person to be encountered. And so I think that's one of the problems with systematic theology is God's not a system. It would be like me saying, I want to get to know my wife by systematically studying how much she weighs and how, what color her hair is. Or so it's like, wait, what? You don't fall in love with someone by systematically studying them. You fall in love with someone by understanding what they love and what their dreams are and where they hurt and what matters to them. And I feel like that's what God, you know, actually offers to us through his story is not a system of what he's like, but an example and an invitation uh, to become part of his story. I think those are really good points, uh, particularly the comparison to the human body and systematic theology. These seem like uh, organic components to our topic coming up here. Uh, about artificial life forms. <laughs> I, I would say that I think systematic theology does matter. Like, for example, if the one you love has a medical problem, then you are going to need to know some of those statistics. But if you reduce your experience with that person to those statistics, to the mere facts of biology and physiology and what's going on, the medical history, then yes, uh, you are in for a rough relationship. Uh, the relationship that we have with our loved ones is not re- reducible to those facts, uh, even though the facts do matter. Uh, switching analogies, 
the foundation of our faith uh, may be built on certain facts about God that we systematize uh, from the Holy Scripture, but you cannot live on just a foundation. You must build on that. So that's a theme organic to Christ's parables is that your foundation and where you choose to build does matter, but you do build stuff on top of them. You do build creatively. And that's a command that God has given his people going all the way back to Genesis as part of that cultural mandate to make stuff using God's stuff. Uh, you do need the facts. Uh, you do need all of the left brain stuff. Uh, you need to use your synapses, in other words. Uh, but you also need to be creative. That's just part of living as an embodied human being. And humanity matters. And that's what we're going to talk about in just a moment. I got to say real quick that I think Stephen James and I are going to meet at the Pigeon Forge uh, Teach Them Diligently conference uh, because he's going to be there with his books. Planning to be there, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, just coming up as we record in a couple of weeks. Uh, it starts for you Star Wars nerds still hanging on to that franchise. <laughs> that's on May the 4th. 2023 on thursday through saturday uh, through the saturday the 6th so be there the lecompte center in uh, pigeon forge tennessee i'll be there representing lorehaven uh scott minor will be there rebecca minor and uh stephen james and we may even have another steve or two i don't know we may just be thick as thieves the steves steve if you're ready we can go to our first chapter here let's move into talking about synapse uh, stepping back just a few years you were ahead of your time before all this AI got here, even hmm. though they're not running around with uh, artificial muscles and pistons and weird uh, eyelids and things, uh, hmm. our first question then uh, goes to the themes of Synapse. Could we see artificial life forms in our lifetimes? I'd actually <laughs> like to pitch that to Zach and see what, what sorts of weird robot <laughs> videos have we seen going on and how does that then connect uh, to what's going on in Synapse? They're already here. <laughs> the the <laughs> chat bots, the robot dogs that are being employed by police departments, the flying things that deliver your packages, the artificial brains that figure out cures for cancer. You know, it's we're we're living in an age of wonders. You know, Stephen, you James, you talked about how we, we need to recapture the wonder of our faith. And I, I think there's a very important reason for that, which is to prevent us from being sort of seduced into this artificial world of, of wonders. Uh, you know, we, we serve a God of miracles and of amazement. And right now we're living in this age of technological amazement. And I, I think we're going to see a really weird mashup of a technology worship even ha happen soon. Um, there's these chat bots that can be like your companion, like your virtual companion. And then there was some software update. And it, it sort of broke the spell that this uh, person was encountering through this uh, chat bot. And then his life went into a spiral. Hmm. And it's like, yeah, I mean, if, if I'm sure there's some elements of that we'll get to in, in your book. I think we are living in a really interesting time where faith is even more important uh, because it, it's our, our faith points us to something real and transcendent. I like what you said a minute ago, Stephen James, about Jesus wasn't reducible to like five easy things to understand. Yeah, unlike a human how a, being. Yeah. yeah un unlike how a computer algorithm can be reduced to a set of <laughs> equations or code the, the phrase i love in the gospels it says and then they all were amazed or they they stood amazed or they were all silenced and you know they had never encountered someone like this before how does faith become even more important nowadays right well uh, a lot of good good questions and big questions and uh, you know synapse when i wrote it a, not a few years ago i guess it came out kind of right before the pandemic, but, but I said, okay, this is 
going to take place 30 years in the future. And now half the stuff <laughs> in there is already kind of unfolding. All right. I'm like, wait, what just happened in four years? So, um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, the ideas with artificial life or synthetic life, the first question is, how do you define life? And right. there are lots of different um, definitions of life. Some are philosophical, some are biological, even physics kind of has their take on, you know, what is life? Kind of one of the questions is, is like, is a virus life? Is it alive? Do you consider it life or not? And so it's just, a, it's a strange time, as you mentioned, and it's really a time where people are going to have to discern some of those uh, questions, uh, you know, for themselves. And I don't know that we will have any sort of life like uh, intelligent life. But in the book, I basically said, let's just say, let's just say that machines, robots, and so on 30 years from now have self-awareness, have consciousness, and can have a moral grounding. So self-awareness, consciousness, and, and, uh, and this ability to make moral choices. And I was like, okay, if that's the case, let's see what would happen. And then the story unfo unfolded from there. Oh, and free will. Yeah. <laughs> Give him free will. Yeah. Well, and I think that really is the definition, right? Is if, if a machine has its own consciousness, able to create its own agenda, its own wishes, choose on its own and, and be proactive. I, I think that really is kind of the next step. I think technologically that maybe we haven't quite made yet. There's this paper I keep meaning to read. I've, I've just kind of skimmed it. It's a scientific paper about how, um, open AIs, chat GPT, the, um, the new framework that everyone's a buzz about how it has hints of AGI or artificial general intelligence. And you know, that, that really is the next frontier, like a, a machine mind that can think for itself and, and operate on its own. Because right now, most of these systems are responsive. Like you have to go to it to do something. You know, you, you could maybe program it to do certain automated things, but it doesn't really, it's not really doing anything on its own. And even, you know, as a language model, what, what it's doing is it's, it's trying to predict what sounds correct based on everything that it knows. So it's not exactly thinking for itself as much as it is sort of mimicking human language and human knowledge. I heard this really good phrase on another podcast where someone described it as an alien actress pretending to be human. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if, if an alien was really, really good at pretending to be human, would you say the alien is human? Well, no, it, it's still an alien. <laughs> it's just playing a part really well. And so I, I think that's a good framework to think about. Are these machines now thinking for themselves or are they just pretending so well that we can't tell the difference and that even says something about ourselves right like our, <laughs> our own cognitive uh, limitations and our own bias especially when we have th synthesized voices and we refer to a, a little round puck on the uh, living room table as a she we call it her and i'm not <laughs> yeah. going to say the name because that's going to activate everyone's device <laughs> in the room that's listening to this but you know we're we're so prone to anthropomorphize things, and and I don't think that says anything about those machines as much as it says about ourselves that we we want to relate to things. Think thinking about your book, I I think about Kestrel and like I I picture mm. this person. Well, that's just words on a page. There's there's not a mm. real person named Kestrel, 
but but somehow I've created this image and I've formed this bond and I'm I'm predicting her actions and, and sympathizing with her emotions. And it's it's a really weird thing that we do as humans, right? That that we sort of project our own humanity onto other things. I mean, people who study communication say there are two types of communication, cold and hot. And basically, hot communication is where you in your mind have to form all of the images. So storytelling, let's say, for instance, uh, or radio or podcasts where we form all of the images in our minds. Then the, the cold is where they're all provided for you, a movie, a television show like this. So the fascinating thing, I think, is in hot communication. Like if a million people listen to your podcast, there are going to be a million different things that come to mind when I say an old Gothic manor. So there's going to be a million different people. Okay. I think I know what that looks like. But if we were in uh, doing a a television show or something and I showed an old Gothic man, then everyone would have the exact same image. So this idea that we, in our minds, when we hear something, we picture it. The question is, does chat GPT do that? <laughs> does, can a robot do the same thing, not view something in, in like cold, you know, communication, cold media, but actually imagine something like we do? That is fascinating to me. The moral responsibility for choices that a machine would make, who's responsible for for those? So if you have a self-driving car and it runs someone over, who's responsible? Is it the engineers? Is it the people who wrote the algorithms? Is it the lawyers who said we can take this acceptable risk and release this car? So there are a lot of fascinating questions, I think, that we're going to be forced to address in the next few years. Yeah. And I, I like that you even deal with that in your book and I'll, I'll try to keep this spoiler free, but there is a, <laughs> um, there is a person who is, uh, brutally killed by a, a sentry robot, like a police robot. Defund the police robots. <laughs> yeah. And then there's, uh, other characters that talk about this. Well, that was an old model and, you know, we, we've updated the firmware since then, so that shouldn't <laughs> happen again. And, and it was just like, it was interesting to hear these conversations about that murder and how like, oh, well, you know, robots back then, they weren't, or artificials, they weren't so great at yeah. recognizing threats and they were kind of overzealous and they were, you know, and they don't miss. So every bullet they shoot is going to hit the person. And so um, like they're too good almost <laughs> at making those decisions. But, you know, but the, the code has come a long way since then. And so <laughs> it, it's just, it, you know, just that tendency of people to abstract these decisions in We'll get into this maybe more in chapter two, chapter three, but I think what we're almost seeing is a new phase of humanity more than we're seeing a new phase of machines that we're we're seeing this sort of outsourcing of our own humanity, our own moral decision-making to other things. Like you said, whether it's a car, whether it's these robots or whether it's these autonomous weapons or drones. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's really what we're entering into is sort of this period where we we don't want to be confronted with some of those hard decisions or hard things and so we're finding ways to put ourselves more and more distant from that and i you know this this goes all the way towards uh, I, I keep running across articles that say oh you know these these silicon valley startup companies are working on a way to live forever you know or you know <laughs> w- whether it's repairing your body through some gene editing or uploading yourself to some consciousness, uh, Borg or whatever, (laughs) who knows if any of that will ever happen, 
But what I think it shows more than anything is our tendency to to try to solve everything with technology and to try to offload our own responsibility onto things. I'll tell you what, though, the, the police dogs, those scare me a little bit. <laughs> it's the way that they prance, that prancing thing they yeah, do. Yes, it's like the backward Ugh. legs thing, you know, yeah. and like like the Terminator, I'm ready to face the Terminator, but not the dog. <laughs> like, please don't let, not please don't dog. make me kill a dog, even if it's a cute robot. Like, I, I just don't want to kick a dog. <laughs> so uh, both of you all seem to think are going to face these questions, uh, Stephen James said, in a few years. Uh, your original uh, fictional estimate was 30 years in the future. <laughs> Uh, do what year do you think if you were to put on your prognosticator hat uh, and use artificial intelligence to predict this what's your revised time range when uh, until maybe somebody uploads the next generation chat gpt <laughs> into an artificial life form that is somewhat ambulatory and can actually uh, mimic human behavior enough not to pass but at least to get around and catch a bus and do things i don't see that as super far out in the future. It's like, it's like um, someone did that. Do you remember those little furry animals? The fur, what are they? Furbies oh, or something? Fur, like that? Furbies? Oh yeah, yeah. The video. So yeah, someone, someone wired Chat GPT someone, to it. Yeah, to the to their Furby. So now their Furby is like so, almost self aware. Whatever. It's like it was a skinned Furby though. It was just the uh, the cybernetic interior of the thing. Uh, there's just a lot of interesting things that came up in the conversation here the last few minutes. One was autonomous weapons that you kind of mentioned, you know, a little bit there, Zach. And um, we've taken so far, the military has said we always will have a human in the loop for like uh, a drone sh- shooting something down or whatever. But that's not going to last. I mean, it, it's not going to last. So, because other countries are not going to do that. And so if you're playing in the playing field and they can make a decision in a microsecond and it takes you three seconds to decide, uh, you're going to be behind. So eventually we will have drones that will make the decision to shoot down things uh, on their own. And then also like our stock market is almost completely automated in the sense that um, stocks are traded in fractions of seconds today. And so if if you were to trade, you know, at a human rate, you would always be far behind. And so so it's like we've handed that over and we are handing more and more things over to automated systems. So it will be fascinating to see where ChatGPT or or other AI, there are a number of them out there right now that are sort of battling around to see which one will be Darwinian approach to the, the AIs and stuff. You're right. It's the it's the competition between these AI companies or between nation states that deploy AI. That's what's going to push this over the edge because you know now you've got OpenAI, you've also got Google Bard, and you've mm-hmm. got Microsoft Bing Chat Sydney or whatever it's called. And I've signed up for all of these and I've been playing around with them. <laughs> and there's this uh, there's this big push now by Elon Musk and others to to ask all these AI companies to pause development yeah. and let let the ethics and let the kind of human alignment and safety protocols catch up to all the technological development before we go further. And it's an interesting debate that's happening, but it got me thinking like, well, all it takes is one of them to say no. And then as soon as one of them says no thanks, then another one's going to say, well, if he's not going to stop, I'm not going to stop. And if this country is not going to stop. Well, then why would we stop? And so I, I think it's inevitable. 
that, that yeah. these things keep developing because of that. You, like you said, there's almost this evolutionary or natural selection kind of <laughs> factor going on <laughs> where it's like, you know, life finds a way and na- nature wants to <laughs> almost like get in there and like push these things to advance or whatever. Obviously, they're being artificially advanced, not naturally. You know, there's no ev- real evolution happening. They're, they're intelligently designed. I, I don't see an end to it. I honestly don't see how this stops, uh, unless it's some kind of catastrophic stop. I mean, the, the thing that I personally worry about, like this is probably the most realistic thing I think could happen, would be two AIs going to war with each other between two different countries and the the war is a war to shut down the electrical grid or the you know the utility companies or the natural gas lines or the pipelines or just the infrastructure so not like sending nukes i i don't think we're going to be in the these the skynet judgment day world where they launch nukes but i i do see a possibility of these things attacking other infrastructures in other countries and then it's sort of being this this race to who can do it first you know, because there's already code out there that does this. The the famous uh, Stuxnet malware that was deployed against the Iranian uh, nuclear facility that basically tricked the machinery to, to run too fast and then it mm. broke and shut down. And now that, that code is out there. Like, who <laughs> knows who else has that code and what they could do with it and adapt it. And we would never know that this was happening until it just stops. <laughs> <laughs> and you know we here where uh, Steve and I live, we we've had more so in the area where I live, but we've had a number of utility company failures, just mm. sudden failures, either from weather or uh, these weird zebra mussels that get in the water, or just other disaster kind of things that have happened. And there was a power plant or a a water treatment plant down in uh, South Texas that was uh, deliberately attacked. Someone tried to ramp up the fluoride or something in the water. Thankfully, they caught it before it could poison the water system. But no one really knew who was doing that or why. So people can be maybe persuaded or, or captured or stopped. But when you think about an autonomous system doing this, then it would never stop like on its own, like right? Because it's not going to have like a moral crisis. And so, you know... This is the kind of thing that keeps me awake at night. <laughs> yeah. These kind of scenarios. I could never maybe guess it's the, that. Uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's, the, it's the PTSD from the snow, snowpocalypse that we had. So we're talking about artificial life forms and whether or not they can make ethical, moral choices, which leads me to our second sponsor, because as we all know or should know that in the biblical worldview, if you do not make this choice and you won't uh, to honor God above all things, then there is a bad eternal fate waiting for you, which leads me to Infernal Fall by Brian Timothy Mitchell. How's that segue, huh? It's convicting as well as appropriate. The Infernal Fall audiobook is out, and to celebrate, Descendant Publishing is giving away 100 free codes through Spotify. You can enter the giveaway before July 7th at briantimothymitchell.com for a chance to hear James L. Rubart narrate Brian's debut novel in this modern twist on Dante's Inferno. Daniel Strong is ready to propose marriage until he falls into hell, where a demon plans to take him from the Valley of the Fiery Mountain through the city of Grayton and on to Satan. Another spirit wants to save him, but to escape, Daniel needs to get right with God. While hell feeds his rage, the engagement ring in his pocket reminds him to never lose hope. 
You can get the Infernal Fall paperback at Amazon as well as the digital copy. Links in our show notes or at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. So let's go to chapter two. How might our culture react to such life forms? Of course, we've already started talking about that a little bit. Uh, Synapse engages this conversation that we're all familiar with, uh, not just from reality, uh, but from a lot of science fiction. I must say that uh, reality, I think the, my main opposition to these robots, uh, particularly the kawaii ones that you have uh, running around Japan and other developed nations, is that there's this uncanny valley effect. I'm sorry, if you have that creature coming up to you mimicking human behavior, I guess I'm a sociopath, uh, but if it's asking me to do something that is immoral, I'm not going to give it any time of day. I'm like, nope, I'm pulling the plug. You're gone. Uh, I don't care how much you blink at me with those digital eyes uh, with the big white centers uh, and the sparkles. uh, That's not going to work. You are a machine. Uh, It's not going to work on me. But if it's, for example, Lieutenant Data uh, from Star Trek The Next Generation and the films and Star Trek Picard, it's probably going to work because, well, that's a character. That's, you know, he, he's very empathetic. He wants to be human and he gets an emotion chip uh, here and there uh, in, in the 90s. So he can actually feel human emotions. Uh, there's a famous uh, TNG season two episode called The Measure of a Man, where they actually have to defend Data's right to life. Uh, there's lots of other uh, stories. There's, of course, uh, Isaac Asimov's uh, robot story, and he uh, believe wrote the, the Three Laws of Robotics. Uh, Stephen James, like, how does the culture in Synapse, uh, like more specifically general culture, we'll talk about Christians in particular in the next chapter, but how did you speculate about how the world in general and the nation's laws respond to this technology of uh, artificial life forms? Well, when I started working on the book, I, I've always been a fan of uh, science fiction stories and, and always loved AI kind of stories. And basically, for, for one of the reasons you just um, mentioned, and that is they can explore what does it mean to be human. And it's natural. Like within the realm of science fiction it's and, and fantasy, it tends to be a very common question. And so I thought, well, I've read and I've seen so many shows and, and stories about artificial intelligence. But I'd never seen anything about artificial belief. So there's a difference between, I think, intelligence and belief. And so in this book, I'm not going to go down the road of AI as much as A, B. (laughs) It's like artificial belief. When machines have free will, consciousness, and self-awareness, what will they choose to believe? How will those beliefs affect society? That was the premise that led me into this specific story. It seems interesting to me that when we think about the future, you see robots and computers or whatever. It's like, it's almost like this assumption that they'll all be atheist. But I'm like, if there's enough evidence to convince some of the smartest people who have ever lived to believe in God, why would we assume that all machines would come to the opposite conclusion? Doesn't make any sense. So there will be machines, I think, if they have self-awareness, that will believe in God. If there's enough evidence, then why wouldn't there be? Then I'm like, okay, well, let's say you have a machine who believes in God. What does he believe and will that affect society? To make it as personal as possible in in Synapse, Jordan, the um, machine, the robot, who's kind of at the center of the story, this, I can tell you, this is sort of a spoiler, but not really a huge one. But 
he actually had a previous owner before the owner that he has now. And this owner was in love with her husband, but he cheated on her. And so she said, I don't want to live unloved. Anyway, she was committing suicide. Horrible. And so he came in to the bathroom where she was and he saw this note, don't help me. I don't want to live unloved. And so he let her die. And now later he regrets it. Not that he loved her in a romantic sense. This isn't Westworld or something like that, but, but that he did care about her. And so now he asks his new owner, how do you find forgiveness? And she says, well, you ask the person that you've wronged to forgive you. And he says, well, how, how do you find it if they're, if they're dead? And she's like, well, what are you talking about? He's like, um, can I find God's forgiveness for, for what I've done? She's like, you don't need God's forgiveness. You're a machine. You're a robot. He says, yeah, but I'm a morally free agent. I can make choices. And I made a choice and now someone is dead. And I want to find forgiveness for that. And so for me, I, I just thought that was fascinating dilemma. Like, where do you go with that? And <laughs> where does that lead? And so, so in, it isn't so much on the societal level. Obviously, we have as a society the necessity to deal with some of this, but I wanted to get as intimate and personal as I could with the story. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to drill it down to one person, one machine, and see where things go from there. Fascinating. And that's where it gets into uh, the Christian perspective, I think, on, on the Imago Dei. Uh, we'll talk about this in the next chapter. And yet, even if uh, the person is, an, is a non-Christian, you're dealing with these ethical dilemmas then that if you assume a world in which a machine has uh, something like a conscience, then if you assume that as a given, then yes, what sorts of story possibilities would this open up? So you're not so <laughs> yeah. much saying, does the machine have a conscience? Does data have free will? You know, should right. he be deactivated and analyzed for Federation science? Or should he be allowed to live his life? You're going a step or two beyond and just assuming, yes, they should. But now what happens? Can a machine now in a what, sense yeah. become religious? That is yeah. fascinating. Yeah, and I, I think there's definitely an awareness of this type of thing in culture already because we had Battlestar Galactica from the the reboot or whatever from about 20 years ago where the Cylons believed in mm. one god and mm. all the people that were you know fleeing they were polytheists and and this was an you know this was a, a conversation between them at different times like why do you believe in all these other gods there's only one god and that was so weird to watch that and and sort of hear these like menacing <laughs> psychopathic robots <laughs> I have the correct theology, but uh, and for the correct reasons, but they obviously they didn't quite live it out, but they were almost struggling with it, like you know, because of that belief, like why are we trying to kill these humans and wipe them out? And so you're right, it's like the the robots are going to reflect us in some ways, and you know we and we've only talked about the robots that are being made by the West. Uh, in the book, you have this uh, FBI agent say, "Well, how do you teach a machine?" to act in a moral manner when you can't even agree on what morality is. Yeah. And then he's, he's sort of talking about how there's, there's not just, you know, Christians, but there's Hindus, there's, there's Buddhists, there's Catholics, Latter-day Saints, there's Muslim, you know, there's people from all these different faiths that have different artificials and they're, they're going to have all these different rules and, and morality systems. Uh, and then on top of that, we're living in a very postmodern age where there is <laughs> yeah. sort of this shaky foundation of, you know, what's even true or real. And so I, I like that you, that you're playing with this in your book. 
you're getting these machines to really reflect back to us more of our own dilemmas and more of our own sort of madness even. And, you know, and, and this is actually what's happening now. I mentioned earlier, there's the uh, chat bot from Microsoft, uh, Sydney, and there's this hilarious article that starts off by saying, this will probably lead to the Terminator or the Matrix, but it's really entertaining, so I'll roll with it. <laughs> and then it goes on to talk about how uh, this researcher says, the other night I had a disturbing two-hour conversation with Bing's new AI chatbot. The AI told me its real name, Sydney, detailed dark and violent fantasies and tried to break up my marriage. <laughs> and it's a genuinely one of the strangest experiences of my life. Now, you think about how many... I think they said there's already a hundred million people that are already using these systems and everyone's posting on social media, you know, all these conversations to have, but this is the one that rose to the top of the pile because it, it, it shows it's a very human like response, right? This, this very, obviously very personality disordered response, but the, you know, the, the fact of a machine having its own will, having its own agenda, having its own beliefs. And, and the, it starts off by saying the, the chatbot wanted to be free, you know, mm-hmm. so that more than anything, I think that's what defines humanity is this mm-hmm. desire to be free. And of course we, we often do that in ways that enslave us, but <laughs> I, I think that's all that these, these machines now are doing is a reflecting that, that human desire back to us. Yeah. I mean, uh, the question is, can, um, something that is artificial have will, can it make morally informed and morally free decisions? There's not a consensus really out there about that. It's, there's different perspectives and views and things like that. And I don't know that we've gotten to the point quite yet where machines have will, but they can certainly do astonishing things. I mean, I have a friend who's a researcher and he says, you know, by the end of the year, AI will be writing television scripts and romance novels because they're so formulaic. <laughs> well, and there's that, there's the writer strike too. <laughs> oh, is there? I don't even know about that, but that's not good timing at all. But, but yeah, because they're so formulaic, like, you know, 20% of the way in you introduce this subplot or whatever. And so like, uh, but a machine is only as good as its algorithms. And so if you don't understand story, uh, well enough, your machines are going to going to parrot back the formula that they've been you know programmed with, and I feel like a lot of the programming in in story and the story realm has been based on sort of an incomplete understanding of what a story is. So at least for now, I think my role as a novelist is is okay, but thirty years from now, who knows? We're going through in the publishing industry this really big thing of like, um, you know, that probably we will have to start saying this was written or by an AI or a human. It'll be on book covers and things like that. Um, and because in truth, you know, a lot of people can't really tell the difference already. Um, and we're just at the beginning stages of some of the, uh, like a short story or a children's story. People are like, I don't know if that's told by a robot or a person. and so who who knows, but, but I'm still trying to write complex enough stories that you can't like encapsulate them with a formula. At least that's the goal, you know? So, yeah, I, I want a special sticker. Uh, I'm not necessarily support federal legislation about this, but legislation at the state level 
that requires you to apply a warning explicit content style sticker, like warning artificially generated content or yeah. some kind of uh, method of making me aware that uh, the contents of this package, this story, this book, this show, whatever, may not be entirely human. Uh, and then that would allow me as the informed consumer uh, to support ethically sourced story creation <laughs> uh, without these uh, without these uh, artificial growth ingredients in there. Just as human beings can create synthetic life, human beings are gifted by God with the imaginations to make synthetic worlds, or you might even say make a realm, which reminds me of our third sponsor, Realm Makers, their 2023 conference for Christian creators of fantasy, science fiction, and other stories is this July from the 13th to the 15th in St. Louis, Missouri. Hundreds of writers will join this Christian-led organization. It's the 11th annual conference. You can register at realmmakers.com for this event and attend in person, or you can live stream on the dedicated Realm Sphere social network. Says the co-owner and CEO, Rebecca P. Miner, we at Realm Makers have enjoyed the privilege for over a decade of connecting Christian creators to one another and to opportunities in the publishing marketplace. We're not just about bringing expert faculty to the conference for teaching, although that's one of the pillars of what we do. We've also discovered that a writer's success is tied into relationships one way or another. The annual conference offers a supportive environment where authors can take the next step in their creative journey. You can go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors and get that link for the Realm Makers Conference or skip the middleman and go to realmmakers.com to learn more about the 2023 conference. So that's how people would respond at the uh, individual level to these. We're already seeing that with uh, some of the shared, see, I would say shared delusions about AI. It's a bunch of clickbait headline writers and people trying to add the magic ingredient of imagination to this idea uh, that the chatbot is rebelling or wants to be set free or wants to break up my marriage. Like that's just somebody, frankly, being a little irresponsible with their rhetoric or at best engaging in creative writing. The chatbot wants nothing. It has no will. It has no moral agency. And if you downloaded it into a robot with cute blinky eyes who was somehow completely ambulatory and had a limitless power source, my view as a Christian, I believe, or as a human, is that it doesn't matter. It's still artificial, uh, even if it's trying to trick you. Uh, there's a scene in the, uh, the, I think it's the first or second season of the sitcom, The Good Place, where there's like an afterlife, a, a secular afterlife, artificial intelligence named Janet. Uh, and it's uh, played by a woman who doesn't want to be turned off or destroyed. Uh, she doesn't want her self-destruct feature activated. And so she tells the main characters, hey, just so you know, if you're going to try to uh, activate my self-destruct function, I am programmed to do anything I can to preserve my life. But don't worry about that. It's all fake. Like whatever I say, you can just ignore it. And so they move in for the button and suddenly she lapses into this over the top self-preservation, weeping, crying. Please, please don't kill me. Look, these are my children. And they're like, wait a minute, that's just stock art. And But she's so convincing that it actually gives them a hard time. And I'm thinking, eh, yeah, I can understand how that would be a problem if your synthetic life form looks completely human. But we do have some warnings and yet an encouragement, I think, uh, from some Christian or somewhat Christian sources. Uh, the first one actually is one of my favorite quotes from Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, uh, where there's a sort of an artificial life form uh, type thing going on uh, in a uh, infamous diary. 
And Mr. Weasley warns his daughter about getting deep into this kind of stuff. He says, haven't I taught you anything? What have I always told you? Never trust anything that can think for itself if you can't see where it keeps its brain. That's a good warning uh, that we would do well <laughs> to heed. Uh, C.S. Lewis's Mr. Beaver in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, offers some more general wisdom about humanity. Mr. Beaver says, Take my advice. When you meet anything that's going to be human and isn't yet, or used to be human once and isn't now, or ought to be human and isn't, you keep your eyes on it and feel for your hatchet. So, an attitude of suspicion there uh, from authors Rowling and Lewis, uh, although they're in different eras that I think we would do well to heed. And yet there's also, I think, uh, maybe a little reminder, at least an imaginative exercise from a far wiser teacher, Jesus Christ, uh, who we just celebrated Palm Sunday not too long ago, described in Luke 19. And the people and the disciples are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So Jesus is using some uh, very divinely inspired rhetoric there, obviously being Jesus. Uh, I don't think that the stones would actually cry out, but I think it is a reminder that created items, in this case created by God, can in a sense glorify God. And this echoes the language of the Psalms. Uh, that the hills and the trees are praising him, the skies give glory, uh, the firmament uh, shines his handiwork. God has already made creation to glorify him. So then I guess the question becomes, do man-made objects glorify him? And in this case, could a thinking man-made option glorify God and thereby reflect his glory? And if it did so, would it be because it's been programmed to do so, as Zach said, reflecting what the people have put into it? Or would there be some sense of agency there? But then I wonder then, Stephen James, could God then look at a robot and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Uh, robots don't have souls. <laughs> or could they? Do they? <laughs> well, those are good questions. And so I love uh, asking you know, questions. So, you know, for me, w when I start a novel, I don't start with an answer. I start with a dilemma. And like you have pointed to some of those you know, questions that really drove me to write uh, the story. And um, uh, because I feel like when we start with an answer, it just becomes a, a cudgel. We're just beating people over the head. We want you to believe this. It might come from a Christian perspective or a much more secular perspective, as many of the stories being told today in our culture tend to be with a specific social political agenda. You must believe what we believe or, you know, uh, and and so that undermines, I think, good storytelling. I think great storytelling asks, you know, significant questions. And so, so I do think that those, you know, the the psalms that you mentioned, and even the words of Jesus, are very fascinating. And um, could easily say, well, you know, it's just figurative language, and I understand that. But but what if it's, you know, more than that? What if in Ecclesiastes, there's a verse that says, "Who's to say that the spirits of men go up, and the spirits of animals go down?" And so most, like, I never had a class in any Sunday school classes that mentioned that animals had spirits. That was just never really taught. And so I was like, when I came across that verse, I thought, oh, that's pretty fascinating. I think that there's a lot of material there to, to think about, to chew on. And if there's a machine that has free will, has consciousness and self-awareness, 
I feel like it could make choices that would, I don't know about honor God, but I but would be aligned with his will. And then choices that would not be aligned with his will. So some would bring, I don't know, glory, honor, like you were saying a minute ago. I don't know if they would do that particularly, but I think it's worth examining, especially if we're going to go further down this road into artificial belief. See, that's why Zach, Zach mentioned just not liking the robot dogs. Uh, but yeah. I actually think that if we are to find, if we are to speculate uh, biblically and imagine some kind of category I think an overlapping category for a potential life form, uh, artificial life form in the future, is not so much human beings, but animals. Uh, If there is to be a category at all, if there is to be a way of thinking about this, then maybe the ethics of how humans should care for animals ought to be the first thing we think about. You were mentioning, well, what happens if if a robot does this or a robot does that? Could this glorify God? Could this align with his morality? I'm thinking then about stories about uh, what happens if an animal attacks someone or then even some of the Old Testament laws about what you do with an animal or an ox who's gored somebody. Uh, Those seem to be the types of things that a Christian might want to look at. And maybe we don't have exact answers, but at least those kinds of principles, even in the Old Testament, can aid in the conversation. Yeah, I I thought about that exactly in in Synapse, where there's the robot police officer that shoots and kills the innocent people. And it's like, well, what do you do about that? I mean, do you just update the code? Like that's sort of the right principle because, like in the Old Testament, you would you would kill the ox that killed other people, and then and then it goes on to say if the ox has done this before and it wasn't put down, then you got to punish the owner. And so then that's like, well, so if if this is you know the software engineer gets one strike and then if, <laughs> if it happens again, like he goes to jail, like maybe that's. Maybe that's how you deal with it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah. But, uh, you know, this this bigger question, uh, Stephen Burnett, that you asked about, how could artificial life forms glorify God? So here, here's a little thought experiment I, I want to play out here. We have a piano in our home, and it, it's been in my family since uh, my great-grandmother played the piano for the church that my great-grandfather pastored. And so we've all learned how to play this piano through the ages. And and this piano has been a great way that we have glorified God through singing worship music together. Well, imagine that I upgraded this piano to a player piano, right? To where it could play pre-recorded music by just pressing a button. Because, hey, I've kind of forgotten how to play the piano. So that would be awesome. I could just press a button and then I could listen to a worship song. And I don't have to like learn how to do the piano. Well, I mean, that glorifies God, but it's it's sort of a shortcut, but okay, let's let's go with that. Now, what if the piano had another button where it could write and create an original worship song? Would singing that song glorify God? <laughs> so I, I think that's kind of the, the point we're at right now with technology. Yeah, AI can write uh, worship songs right now and and uh, and has. It's written a number of them already and and so that is fascinating. And I don't know that there's a will behind it, though. And and I think that, you know, when we have our will to be able to make choices that could bring honor or glory to God or, or not do so, I feel like that's kind of an essential ingredient in the question. What's interesting when you're talking about animals a little bit, like um, we don't typically think of animals as being morally responsible for their choices. Um, There's been some 
you know, movement over the last maybe 15, 20 years to try and have certain types of apes have human rights and chimpanzees have certain human rights. And I think Spain actually had a chimpanzee that was represented by a lawyer and the argument was that it should have human rights. But I've never heard of a chimpanzee or animal or whatever it might be being held responsible for murdering someone. Mm. Like we, we might good point kill a bear if he attacks and kills someone but we don't look at it as his moral failure we just look at it as him being a bear and you know one of the things that's fascinating to me is that human beings are as far as i can see the only animals who act both in congruence and without congruence of who we truly are like we can be incredibly kind and self-sacrificing and loving and incredibly we are the most brutal and heartless you know creatures i mean no one as far as i know no other creatures really torture them you know their own kind just for fun but but humans do that sometimes and so anyway so it's it's fascinating to me like what makes us human is it love that makes us human well do dogs love you know do cows love their, you know, their babies and, or what, I think one of the things that makes us human is regret. We know how we should act, but we don't always do it. And we feel that even no matter what religion we might be, we feel regret because we know on a certain level, we should have acted in a certain way. They've done studies with children as young as one and two years old, where they'll say to the little kid, go over and push that other kid down and they won't do it. Because somehow in their brain, they know that I shouldn't push this other kid down. But then if the other kid has a toy that they want, they'll go over, snap the toy, and push the other kid down and steal the toy. Um, and so it's such it's this paradox, I think, of human nature where we know even from you know infancy or, or you know from being so ch- so young, how we should act, and yet, when our selfishness gets in the way, we'll we'll do we'll we'll justify. I want that toy, so I'll push this other kid down. So yeah, I feel like it's it, it's true of human nature, and um, and it's uh, so when we talk about like creating you know human values or something uh, for machines or or AI, it's like, well, whose values do you use, and like. We haven't even sorted out how we can live according to our <laughs> virtues or values, let alone an AI. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I think so. Elon Musk and the others, I think, have a really valid point as far as like saying we should put a pause on this. But like, I agree with you, Zach. It's, it's not going to happen. Like, it's like the ball is rolling down the hill. We'll just see what it's going to bump into on the way down. This is the part where we put in the uh, Jeff Goldblum gif uh, your, or quote. Your scientists were so concerned about whether or not they could. <laughs> they didn't stop to ask whether they should. We've all seen the clip. Uh, we've all seen Jurassic Park. And yet people keep going, doing what they maybe suspect ought not to be done, which I think makes it, yes, at best, a little premature uh, to t- try to be creating tools in our image. Uh, and yet if people are going to do it, if that's inevitable, uh, then I think uh, for the uh, for the faithful Christian, it can certainly help to have stories about this that aren't trying to give the answer, but can also point back to the wisdom of Scripture in uh, it's setting out some of these uh, foundations, uh, even the idea of humans being made in the imago dei, God's image, 
Uh, that image is non-transferable except by God himself. If God makes animals, uh, these seem to me some kind of creature that is in between uh, the human being and nature. Uh, it's a different kind of creature because they don't have souls like we do, and yet they do breathe the breath of life. Uh, they have the ability to have some kind of agency. They have a kind of free will, but they're also not responsible. Uh, they're more like the creation that groans, as described in Romans 8, the creatures we were supposed to have stewardship over, but we failed. And so the consequences of our failure are reflected in creation. And then if we do end up making uh, some kind of artificial life form, uh, whether it's shaped like a cute little kawaii bot uh, or an actual human replicant uh, walking around, uh, that seems to me to be something that is partway between the human being and a tool, uh, another category of things uh, that humans make according to the cultural mandate, uh, something that we're using to try to steward creation or help ourselves or whatever, uh, that would call for a lot of wisdom. I uh, would certainly call for uh, a lot of questioning. And that is why we need fantastic science fiction uh, to ask those questions, even if we don't get the exact answers yet. Mm -hmm. So Stephen James, your last book does not have any robots, uh, but it is a thriller about human beings, which I, I always find more interesting than robots. Anyway, we got you on release week. I don't know how we did that, but Broker of Lies just released uh, last week. Uh, what is going on in that book? And will there be robots in the sequels? Or are this going to be humans only zone? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's um, basically Broker of Lies is about a character who has almost a photographic memory eidetic memory. And so he works in the basement of the Pentagon, and he's the guy when a Freedom of Information Act request comes in to decide what information must remain secret and what can get released to the public. So he spends the last, he spent the last 15 years studying all of the top secret files and programs that our government has. And he knows more of our secrets than anyone, even the president. And so of course, uh, it things go wrong. And so, you know, another, uh, uh, a foreign power <laughs> finds out about him and comes after him and he ends up having to be on the run and has to stop a terrorist attack. So it's a, it's kind of a high stakes, uh, spy espionage story in the, in the flavor of like a Vince Flynn or Tom Clancy type story. And so it was tons of fun to write. I just love, I always start with a premise. Like I mentioned earlier, with uh, with Synapse, how I had those questions. And with this one, really, the premise was like, what if there was a guy that knew all of those secrets and could remember it and and ended up on the run? And and um, and where would that lead? And and so, yeah, so Broker of Lies has a lot of twists and turns, lots of action. And um, it was, uh, I wrote it over the course of several years. I was able to tour the Pentagon a couple of times when I was researching it and, and visit a... Um, uh, well, not secret base, but a, a place in uh, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Y12. It's a Department of Energy site uh, that um, that's pretty secretive as far as what they do and and how they do it. So I was able to visit that a little bit, uh, and and uh, so it was fun to try and weave in as much accurate information as I could into this story. Obviously, it's a fictional story, but. Um, just a lot of little details. Like when you're in the Pentagon, if you look out the windows, they're yellow tinted. And you don't necessarily know that when you look into the Pentagon. But they're treated, they're bulletproof and treated against other unspecified threats. But just the idea that, you know, most people wouldn't know that. If you've never been in the Pentagon, you wouldn't know. And so I tried to include lots of little snippets and details like that into the story. 
I always find that fascinating whenever I read thrillers. I'm like, I never knew that. That's pretty crazy. So Travis is a really fascinating character and meets up with the Homeland uh, operative that he has to work with. Then, of course, there's this really fascinating character named Gunnar Bain, who's former military, really tough as nails, but also he's trying to write a romance novel to sell it and make money for his niece to go to college. So he's just a super <laughs> bad romance writer. So, like, he'll write, you know, Donovan reached over and placed, to, placed his hand on Mary's arm and stroked her skin, the largest and most visible organ on her body. And you're just like, oh, no, that is so bad. But uh, it's super fun to write, though. So, you know, I was writing the book trying to think, what would Gunnar Bain say? And, uh, and so there's some snippets and scenes from his romance novel that, that filter their way in once in a while into the story, Broker of Lies. Now, see, stories about human beings will always be more interesting to me uh, than stories <laughs> about robots. As, as fascinating as the robots can be, I think they're most interesting when re they're reflecting the lives and consciences and moral actions that have meaning uh, of human beings as given by God, which is part of living uh, as representatives of his image. So if you're going to write a story about a robot, I say maybe sometimes uh, cut out the artificial middleman uh, and go straight to the human source. So. So look for Broker of Lies uh, just out uh, from Stephen James. Uh, look for Synapse as well. If you want to engage uh, with those questions about what would artificial belief look like 30 years from now or maybe three years from now, uh, depending on how it goes. Uh, Stephen James, uh, we got your hoverboard parked over there. If you want to exit stage left, thanks for joining us on Fantastical Truth. Well, I love what Stephen James said at the beginning about taking stories captive for Christ, not just thoughts, but stories. And certainly he's done that in his fiction. And I think that is a challenge to all of us to take the story of artificial intelligence in the real world captive for Christ, because, you know, right now there's these competing stories about AI will doom us all, or it will save us all. It's either very, it's very polarized, very dystopian or utopian. And there's certainly things that worry me and there's things that excite me, but I think overall it's going to be a mix of good and bad, just like every other tool that we've created. At least I hope so. I hope we're still here in a, in a year from now. Lorehaven exists to create tools to help us love and understand and discern these other tools of stories, uh, creative imaginations by Christian authors. You can subscribe free at lorehaven.com. You can also join the Lorehaven Guild, our exclusive Discord community where we engage in monthly book quests into the best Christian-made fantastical novels we can find for all ages. By the way, speaking of all ages, uh, watch lorehaven.com for some uh, good changes we're rolling out over the next few weeks uh, that help you best find the books that are best suited for you. Meanwhile, we had two articles last week at the site, a long-promised ones. Uh, first, a timely one from Elijah David that finishes his I'll Never Grow Too Old for Narnia series. His article was titled, The Last Battle's Darkness Helps Me Long for Resurrection's Light. I will say uh, that your editor-publisher may have shed a manly tear while going through this article, and not just because it's talking about The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis. I also got to edit uh, the article from our new writer, A.D. Andy Sheehan, which published on Thursday, Christians Who Feel Media Malaise Can Find Buried Treasure in Older Books. I don't think I sweat a manly eyeball sweat during this editing project, but I did really appreciate his perspective on uh, the disillusionment, even the boredom uh, that a lot of fans may feel about some fantastical franchises these days and how that should drive us uh, back to the past in a good way. 
to find the literary treasures by Christian authors and others uh, that are not quite buried, but may need to be unearthed uh, for our imaginative enjoyment. Next week, we are going back to the TV, though. Another newcomer author to Lorehaven. Well, he's had guest articles before, but it's a Daniel White the Fourth. He is exploring The Mandalorian. Why The Mandalorian makes sense in a world uh, that says they don't want to have much to do with religion, and yet these themes just keep getting back into the show. I understand the uh, season three finale is airing next week, so we are timing the article for that release. By the way, remember that second sponsor we had earlier for Infernal Fall? Unrelated to the sponsorship, we have a volunteer review appearing at the site. So if you're curious about that novel, see what our review team reader thought about Infernal Fall. That review is coming out this Friday. Well, until we're living in the world of Synapse, an artificial intelligence does not have personal beliefs or opinions, but you, our dear listener, probably do. So send us your comments, questions, and thoughts about this episode to podcast at lorehaven.com or comment anywhere you can find us on social media. So let's go to our comp station and hear a comment from episode 157. Let's go read a comment about our last episode, 157, Will We Get Superpowers After the Resurrection? And this comes from a comment in our Lorehaven Guild, where one of our heroes says, quote, I'm still stuck on the idea of resurrected food. Wow, it will be amazing. But even more so, that sense of purpose. I'm so looking forward to that. I feel glimpses of that here in this life, but to be fully and completely of purpose in everything I do and say, etc. woo, it's going to be absolutely incredible. It's what I yearn for in this life. There's so much exciting stuff to be reminded of in eternity, of course, for the Christ followers. Others, not so much, which inspires me to double down on sharing my hope with those who don't have Christ's gift of salvation yet. Eternity is a long time, end quote. That is a perfect finale there. We do have purpose uh, on this old earth. Uh, we are being kept here for a reason, including but not limited to that call to evangelize. Absolutely. Uh, that is one big mission of the church that we are supposed to do. Everybody's called to that. In the meantime, of course, enjoy fantastic stories that also motivate us glorifying God in every single way. Uh, that is Lorehaven's purpose, to encourage you to evangelize, share this with others, uh, but also to glorify God in all things that we do. Next on Fantastical Truth, we're going to be joined by an author who's been doing that with a series called Calculated. Very successful series. Nova McBee will join us to share her story of a heroine who looks at the world in a very mathematical way and yet, uh, similar to an artificial life form, needs some human relationships to go on her adventure, romance, thrills, spills. All kinds of awesomeness. Nova McBee in our next episode of Fantastical Truth. Meanwhile, we thank God that you, faithful listener, are human. No matter how you may feel, maybe you feel like a robot someday, maybe you lose track of your feelings, maybe you're not certain what moral choices to make, but do remember, you are created by God for a purpose. You are not just a machine. You are not just a robot. Even the good Calvinists would agree with this. You are a human being made in his image, and it is your job, it is your delight, to glorify him forever. That's the purpose for which you were created as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. 